I want to share with you today where we've been for eight weeks in. And last week we landed on that we've discussed men, we've discussed women, we've discussed kids, we've discussed the legacy of what family is, it's the legacy of souls. And last week we sort of took a shovel and went a little bit deeper because with male, female, and kids, we end up with personalities, and if you have personalities, you have problems. And problems, we left off last week, have the possibility connected to them. And I gave you three possibilities when you face problems. Number one, you'll get worse. Number two, you'll get lazy and passive and go, it is what it is, and you'll never change. And number three, you'll overcome them and find solutions. Those are your three options. Even if you don't like them, they're just your options. You get better, you get worse, or you stay mediocre with it is what it is, and you tolerate it. And I want to talk to you today about problems. I want to, but I don't want to just talk about problems. I want to teach you how to find solutions. And, you know, I guess I've been thinking about this series, Family, we're eight weeks in. You could literally talk about it forever because it touches relationships and it touches, like I said, personalities and all of the dynamics of our successes and our failures. But what I do know is that no matter how much we love Jesus, we're not immune to problems. They, they come, they, they hit even the best of us. We can fast and pray and believe and go to church our whole life and then square on to a problem. And when we touch the problems, it's amazing how we all respond differently. And many times because we are humans with personalities and we hit a problem, well, we start responding with, is it God? God's mad at me. Where's God? I don't know why God won't do this or the devil. I feel like the devil's riding me hard. Or if we're not really spiritual, we don't blame God or the devil. We blame people, parents, bosses, the economy, Republicans, Democrats, presidents, whatever we can blame. And because problems just arise on us. But what I want to do today is not try to put every individual problem on a wall and try to tell you here's how you do it. But I want to get you to the door of willing to face it. Can you take this down a little bit? It's really hot. It's ringing a little bit. That it, if you're not careful, you'll never get to the problem because you never take the first step to go there. And I'll teach you why I think that is. I Googled this. I, a simple Google, I, I Googled how to solve a marriage problem. And 56,900,000 results popped up. <laughs> so I'll simply say this, if your marriage is hurting, it's not a knowledge problem. It's not a knowledge problem. Our world is not facing a knowledge problem right now. I just screenshot the first two. I scrolled down 10 ways to save a marriage, five steps, 14 ways, 16 ways, three ways, never fight again. I mean, just over and over, page after page. Now, if, that, if there are 56 million hits of articles on how to solve a marriage problem, then you would think all of us in this room would be wildly successful. But yet, what we've said all along is we're in the high 50% range of failures in marriages. Those are those that actually sign the papers and divorce each other. 
But if we take that statistic out and we just ask the question, how many people are genuinely happy and are not just existing, not just staying together for the sake of the kids, not just, well, I've been in it so long, I don't want to start over. So we sleep in separate rooms, we go about life, we just pay the bills, we become roommates. I, I would think that the statistic, if, if 50 plus percent are divorcing, I would take a guess, this would be a guess, that, that, that the statistic is even higher of, of happy marriages. And if I ask you in the room today to just assess where you are between a one and a 10, 10 being we couldn't be any better, one being I'm gonna kill him after church, <laughs> you could assess your own marriage. I don't know if I've ever met a 10, but most people who are older, who've lived life together, and they've gone, as you heard Sam say about our senior B group, they go through life, they fight together, they work together, they slave together to make life work. Usually you find those people have reached a level of contentment. Not that they're problem free, but they've learned how to do life together. And they've learned how to get over the problem when the problem arises. So I want to jump into the story of Job. Most people, even if you do not know Jesus, you know Job. Job tends to have almost as much knowledge and power in the lives of humanity and their mind as Jesus does. Because it's such a tragic story. But in the tragic story, I would like to pick up five ways that I think can help you find a solution when you face a problem. And how you approach the solution will determine whether or not you overcome it. So I'm gonna read the scripture, make some comments, and then the final is just gonna be very practical things that I've lived and Robin and I've worked out that I want to share with you on how to get over it. So as we get ready to read, I would like you, if you don't mind, you can do it mentally, you can do it on your phone, you can text yourself. If you're a note taker, you could write the note. But is there a problem right now that's facing you? In your marriage, is there an issue, a conversation point, a struggle, an irritant, a frustration that is looming in your marriage? Now it may be pressing right now, meaning you argued about it this weekend. It may be connected to family, it may be connected to choices and futures and money and sex and intimacy and kids and that's what I mean by problems are connected to everything. But is there a looming in front of you that you could define this is the problem? Again, it could be immediate. But it could also be lingering, and by lingering, I mean you've, you've attempted to solve it, but it's a source of contention, so you just keep a Band-Aid on it. Because every time you pull the Band-Aid off, we argue about it. So it never heals, it just festers, and you try to make sure that the festering doesn't become poison, but we'll even say things like this, yeah, that's just kind of a taboo subject, because every time I even say the word money or sex, or spending or whatever we argue and so we just we just decide not to even talk about that that is a closed subject now though that on the surface is great because it keeps you from fighting but but long term a closed subject in the closet that is allowed to fester is why 50% from plus more people end up divorced or higher miserable 
because they feel like they have nowhere to talk. They have nowhere to get it out. This is why affairs are so critical to the death of a marriage because when you're married to the person you love, but then in that love, the problem begins to loom. And then in the looming problem, we test it. And when we test it, we argue and may test it a few more times and we get frustrated and irritated. And then lo and behold, the man starts talking to a friend or a secretary or the woman starts sharing with her boss and then all of a sudden you have a fresh set of ears that's not condemning, that's not putting you down, that you feel like they empathize with you and in that empathy you start connecting emotionally. And then in that emotional connection, we wind up with, fall, we would say, falling in love with someone else. Or you'll hear a lot of times in an affair when they're talking about the mistress or, or the mister that they're sleeping with. Uh, they will say things like this, they connect with me. I, I just felt a connection. I, I felt like they got me. They understood me. And yet they're married to somebody for 30 years, but yet the, the five-week fling, they get them, understand them, connect with them, uh, listen to me, and then this guy's over here clueless. And you would say, what happened in 30 years of marriage that you couldn't connect, but you connected with this random person you work with who knows nothing about you, and then there comes the answer. The reason we could connect to a random person and have sexual encounters and feel so connected emotionally to them is because there was no threat when I began to talk the problem out. So I could talk to them and I didn't feel like we were going to argue and fight. They just listened. They understood. And so you, you do, I would think, understand how affairs typically get started. They rarely get started in a nightclub on a drunk binge. They get started because we open up a secret place to someone else that begins to understand the pain we're going through. Now, the, the best place for the pain to be shared is in the marriage. I'm not opposed to counselors. I'm definitely not, not, you know, not for affairs. That's not biblical. I'm definitely for getting help with counselors and psychologists but still the most beautiful place to work out a problem is with each other. There's nothing better than being able to work it out together, fight together, and, and realize that you, you hold each other's darkest place in your heart because you're going to fight for one another. And yet many couples, this is my experience, many couples never really share the deep secrets of their heart because it's a threatening place. But they'll share it with their friends, they'll go out and have a beer, and they'll talk about their darkest place or their hurts, or she'll go out with the girls and share everything going on, but you put them in a room together, and they don't really ever get to that place of intimacy. Now, I, when I say intimacy, I'm not talking sexual intimacy, that can come or go. But there is an intimacy, my, my belief, there's an intimacy beyond sex that is so much more deep than sex because it's an intimacy where we connect in the secret place of our life. And by the secret place, I mean we know everything about each other and we have each other's back and we fight for each other. And like I said last week, there's nothing that we could ever share that could stop our love for each other. Now when you get to that place, 
intimacy sexually becomes more meaningful. Conversations become more meaningful. Spending time together becomes more meaningful. And I'd like to teach you how to get there because I want us all to be successful. We pick up Job chapter 1 verse 14. A messenger arrived at Job's home with the news. Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys and feeding the don- with the donkeys feeding beside them and when the Sabians raided us they stole all the animals and killed all the farmlands. You got to love this guy. I'm the only one that escaped to tell you. Appreciate that info. I'm glad he shared it with me. It gets worse. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. And I'm the only one escaped to tell you. You ever felt irritated that it rains on your house and nobody else's? Because I'd like to say, well, how in God's name did you escape to tell me if you watched them get burned up? Did you burn them? That'd been my first question. Did you burn them up? Because that, I mean, I'm, I'm going straight to how did you survive this mess? Were you just sitting up on the hill with binoculars going, watch them burn? Well, it gets worse. While he was still speaking, a third, it's, it's a bad Monday for him. Everybody getting the point? This is not a good day. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with the news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. And I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. You you have a couple of options here with this. Three three back to back to back while one's still speaking, another one's coming to the front door and knocking. We either have, he's got a lot of bad luck. He's really powerful and the devil's going after him or God's ticked at him. Those are your options. He's just having a bad day, and everybody woke up and thought, let's just kill Job today. Or the devil in the story said, hey, there he is. And so wherever we land theologically with Job, let's land with this. This isn't a good day for him. God, devil, or people, he's having a horrible day. It gets worse. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters are feasting at their oldest brother's home. And suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness, hit the house on all sides, the house collapsed, and all your children are dead. And I'm the only one left to tell you. In one day, he lost his business, he lost the livelihood, he lost ten children in one day. I don't know how any human could survive this. My house is gone, my... Money's gone, my investments are gone, my legacy is gone, my children are gone. And he's left with a wife. It's an interesting story about Job. I've pondered it for years and studied it to try to understand it. And in all of my study and understanding, I I come to this place to go, I don't even know how the guy went into chapter 2. It's 40 plus chapters long. I don't know how he made it to chapter 2. Because most people who lose everything might go into chapter 2, but when you lose all 10 of your children in one day, I find few people that would want the story to keep going. Because when you face a problem that's, that's hurtful, it's hard to see any reason to keep going. That's why, again, divorce, I don't want to keep going. It hurts too bad. I don't want to press through the pain. I just want to get out. 
My, my story today is not about Job per se. It's a beautiful story, but I will say this. Thank God he did not tap out because by the time we get to the end of the story, God has restored everything back to him. No, not the kids that died, but he ended up getting double back, double the children, double everything. And the Bible says about Job that rarely people talk about, he died a good old age. So what I find out is most people, when life hits problems, they just wish they were dead. They tap out, they hit the button, they throw in the towel. Because often the problem can be so domineering that we lose hope for the future. I want to say this to you. I, I, I've heard all many problems through my years of pastoring and counseling. But please hear me when I say this. Don't ever throw in the towel too soon. Don't, don't ever tap out when it looks so bad. Why? Because there's always another chapter. There's always another day. There's always another battle you can get through if you'll just press on and keep going and move through it. So this is my thought when I was putting this together. Seemingly, when problems arise, many people offer opinions, but few provide solutions. I don't know if you've ever found, if you don't know this yet, you may not, there's this place, it's a city worldwide, it's called Facebook. And I'm amazed how people put their problems on there, and people who put their problems get a lot of other people commenting opinions about the problems, but you can read literally lists of opinions. Oh, I feel for you, praying for you, so sad for you, hate it for you, I got you covered, hearts, emojis, emojis, and hearts, and hearts, and emojis. I'm like, great, great, and great, and great, and great, and great. But all my hearts and emojis and I got you and I'm praying for you typically are nothing more opinions because solutions aren't being offered. Now, now why is this so hard? It brings me to a question. Why are solutions to problems oftentimes so difficult? The I'm praying for you, Cade, is easy. But to offer a solution if he has a problem is, can be very difficult. Why? Because when, when you're facing a problem, it's so personal that if anybody does anything other and pull off the Band-Aid, it hurts. The best way I can say it is if you need a child that gets a splinter and you'll know what I'm talking about. When they get the splinter, it hurts so bad that we just want to put it in the mouth and but we all know that if I don't get that splinter out, it will fester to the point it become a lot worse later if, if not dealt with, depending on where it's at. But have you ever tried to get the splinter out of a four-year-old's finger? The world is about to end. And you're sitting there with a little needle and their eyes are this big and they're like, ah! and you're like, just calm down. I got to get it out. I've about got it. Now the reason solutions are difficult is because oftentimes the solution makes you look so deep that it hurts the problem more. It stings. Because as you heard Sam give a beautiful testimony a moment ago, 19 years a meth addict. But the solution is not to cut back on the meth. 
The solution is not for his wife to just keep praying and anointing the house with oil. The solution was he got arrested. And that put him in jail, which was probably more difficult than what he was doing. But the solution that brought a greater difficulty became the place he met Jesus and found freedom. Right? So oftentimes, Christians don't really want the solution because it starts out more difficult than the problem. Because the solution is going to force you to look at things you may not want to look at. Therefore, I just live with, well, rather than a solution, I just say this, I need prayer. Would you just pray for me, please? I'm like, yeah, I will. But I'm going to pray for a solution. I don't want to pray for the problem. I need to pray for the solution. And just know that sometimes the solution could be a little more difficult on the surface. And that's why many don't find freedom. Does that make sense? I don't want to lose that, but, but that's kind of how I see problems is it's better to ignore them because I, my solution is, is too difficult. So when I'm facing a problem in 2011 and Robin and I are going through a marital issue, the solution was much more difficult than the problem because the easy of the problem, just forgive him, just forgive him. Well, that's great. But, but the solution took years. It took driving to counseling. It took investments. It took reading books. It took uh, going to professional counselors to help us to, to get where we got today. And oftentimes that difficulty is just not wanting to be faced. So here's my thinking. The reason many people struggle to find solutions to the problems is it touches every aspect of your life. The solution will touch you emotionally as well as the problem. If, if you could say, let's take this for example, what's the problem? Ah, God, this is not relational, but physical. My knees hurt. Okay, your knees hurt. Let's pray for your knees. Father, touch these knees. And then all of a sudden the knees get healed. And then a month later, the knees hurt again. Okay, so Father, touch these knees. Ooh, knees got healed. A month later, Father. But what we realize is it's really not the devil and it's really not God touching your knees. It's that Mark has gained so much weight that his knees are like, this hurts. So somebody needs to step in and say, Mark, it might not be prayer. It, it might need you need to go to the gym and cut back on some calories. So every problem is going to have an emotional ease and an emotional difficulty. And typically we will take the ease of the problem. And the ease is, would you pray for me so that I don't have to deal with any of my bad habits? Would you pray for me so that I can get out of this mess without any effort at all? Would you pray for my marriage so that my husband will change? Now, the reason I say that is we don't want to ride to counseling because we're both really busy and we spend all our money on our hobbies rather than getting better. And he's just kind of not that way anyway. He doesn't want to open up. But, but if you would pray. So what happens is it touches that, but it not only touches you emotionally, physically, it touches you spiritually and it touches you relationally. Every problem you face will touch these areas. Have you ever had a problem lingering so long that you just feel sick? You can't eat? 
Food doesn't even taste good because you're an emotional wreck because of the problem. You're losing weight and nobody knows why. It's because you, the emotions have made you sick physically. But then there's the dark side spiritually where there are spirit beings, there are angels, there are demons, there is a warfare. And then because you are a human and we're talking about family, every problem will affect you relationally. I don't want to, I could probably hang on this for months, but I want to move toward an answer. Now, this is where I've landed. Why do so many couples choose to tolerate problems rather than tackle solutions? That's been my thinking this week. And I'm lumping myself in with you. I'm not acting like I got it all together all the time. I do try to live and learn and become a better human. So when I face a problem, I'm not scared of it, but I do try to become better because of it. And sometimes I do good at that, and sometimes it's a struggle. Sometimes I'm like, I've got this, and other times I'm like, oh. But why, if there's 56 million answers to the problem, would we tolerate the problem And now it's causing all these sicknesses, emotional and physical, and we're not talking and we're ignoring each other and our sex life is horrible and we're angry and kind of irritable around each other. Rather than saying, hey, let's sit down and tackle these solutions. And I think I understand why. I'll share it with you. We got to go back to Job. We come into chapter two. Chapter two is about to get worse. How could you get worse? You've lost your children. You've lost your businesses. We come into chapter 2, and here's why it gets worse. His wife said to him, Do you know what I've noticed? In all my years of pastoring, nobody ever talks about the wife. She lost 10 kids too. She lost her livelihood as well. She has to bury all her children. And everybody's like, Job, oh, Job, oh, poor Job. I'm like, anybody ever want to talk about his wife? Anybody even care about her? Anybody even care that she's hurting desperately? And this is, we get two verses about her. Most people don't even know her name. Like nobody says, well, what was her name? It's just Job's wife. It's Job's a problem. And then it's Job's wife. And if you want to know, or at least what most people think in the Talmudic tradition, her name was Dinah. She was the only daughter of Jacob who had 12, which were the sons of Israel. And she was the only daughter and she married Job. Nobody ever talks about her. We just get two verses and it's seemingly such a bitter woman now. Look, if you've raised 10 kids, you're a doggone good woman. That was your chance. Amen, ladies. If you raise 10 children in the middle of the Middle East with no air conditioning, you're a good woman. There's no epidurals. You're just having to pop them out in the middle of the desert. There's no Advil and Tylenol. There's, you know, I mean, all of that. There's no book that says what to expect when you're expecting. So I'm going to at least lean into that she's a pretty good doggone woman here. 
But I want you to know what problems do. Problems can cut you so deep that it begins to destroy the relational equity we have with each other. And she says to them, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Just curse God and die. You got to love that wife. But she's probably saying it out of hurt. And then he answers back. You can tell they're married. You talk like a foolish woman. My God, it's worse now. Not only have they buried their children and lost their business, now they're at odds with each other. And my belief is that is the premise of every problem is to get the husband and wife at odds with each other. It is to get you at odds with God. Curse God and die. And it's to get you at odds with each other. Foolish woman. And so what we do know about problems when it touches a marriage it will touch how you see God and touch how you see each other. And if I can destroy either or, I've got you. As an enemy, I've got you where I want you. I destroy all hope in God. It is what it is. And then I, I change the perceptions of each other. You're a foolish woman. And once I can change your perceptions of each other, I've got you. Because I'm the devil... And I have an eternal side to me, meaning I don't die at 70. I keep through every generation. I can wait you out. I just need to change how you see God, and I need to change how you see each other. And the way I'll do that is present problems to you. And then once I present the problem, if I can impact how you see God or impact how you see each other, I'll sit back and just wait, and you all will self-implode, and I won't have to do anything. And many people are destroyed because when the problem hits them, it impacts how we see each other. We don't trust each other anymore. We lose respect for each other because we don't know how to fight for, we know how to fight with each other rather than for each other. So what I'm going to offer now, I'm going to give you the answer and then give you the, the solution. Here's my thinking. You have to live with all women for this to be true. I've learned this living with five women. <laughs> Males and females approach solutions vastly different. Come on. And this oftentimes creates more problems than the original problem itself. So that's why I'll let the problem linger because to try to talk that out with a woman, it's just going to create more problems. Yeah. Now, without getting into the psychology, maybe I will in a few weeks, but not today. But typical men are this way, ladies. We're practical and tactical. We don't care if you cry. We don't care if it hurts you. Practical, tactical, solve it, move on. Women are emotional and relational. It, the problem touches everything. My hair, my everything. It touches the animals and the children and the friends and the school and the... It's no different than when you go in to look, me and Robin have been looking at maybe buying land and moving somewhere, and we walk in and look at the house, and I'm looking at it like, oh, man, I can change this. This is awesome. I see the vision, practical and tactical, take the wall out, move this. When she walks in, it's emotional. I just don't feel it. It's not vibrating with my spirit. I'm like, what are you talking about, woman? What do you mean you don't feel it in your soul? This is a house, right? We just approach things. It doesn't mean she's right or wrong or I'm right or wrong. It's how we approach the problems. 
So when you try, now this is why I say most married couples can't do this. But, but here's the funny thing. I think that's a lie because I think they can because that's how affairs get started. You'll work through a problem with another, another uh, you know, sex and feel totally comfortable. So there's something about the marriage that we don't approach solutions because it's going to create a bigger problem. Now, right now, is there a problem in your marriage that you've shelved because to talk about it creates bigger problems? You answer that. So you'll say, well, we just don't talk about that because every time we do, it just turns into a hellhole and, and we just fight. And so it's just better. We just kind of left that alone. I understand. And that's probably wise, but I think we could potentially tackle it. So hopefully you've written down the problem. And now I would like you to write, is there a word, a thing, a problem that you know exists, but you're afraid to talk about it? It's going to stir something up and you know it and it's only going to make the problem more difficult. I don't want to talk about it. It could be sex. It could be money. Well, every time we talk about sex, we argue. Every time we talk about money, we argue. Every time we talk about the job, we argue. Or spending money, we argue. Or credit cards, we argue. So we just don't. All right? I want to offer how to approach solutions. I'm going to give you five of them. Write them down. They did not come from the 56 million searches of Google. They came from my belly. You're welcome. <laughs> I've never taught this before. You're getting it brand new right here. You can download it and do with it what you want. I don't want you to solve the problem. I want you to be willing to approach the solution. Most people don't solve the problem because they're never willing to sit down and approach it. It's too volatile. The first thing you've got to do is start with intention and not frustration. I'm going to give you a few practical things what I mean by each sentence. I mean the worst way to tackle a problem, ladies, is when he comes home tired and you're frustrated. And you're like, I just, and, and he walks in and he's tired. He's been 40 hours or you've been working all day and you're, you're mad at something he's done and you're frustrated and you've worked it up all day and you've had time to think about it and you've got your game plan ready. And he just kind of walks in like most men, just clueless that you're even bothered. Has no clue why you're bothered. And you've told him 20 times why you're bothered and it just. Phew. So I will say most never get to the problem because they start out frustrated. As soon as they're frustrated, they want to start trying to fight it out and argue it out. So what I mean by intention is this. Hey, Robin, this thing's been on my heart that's been bothering me that I want to talk about. Here's what it is. Um, money. Uh, we've got some debt I want to work with. Now, instantly, if I say, I'm just hypothetical, if I say money to her, and that, that's the code word of we're about to fight. That's code word for code red. If she doesn't understand what's happening, she gets frustrated and goes, what do you mean we're going to talk about? How do we... And then all of a sudden, we, we're, here we go fighting. And then I go, just never, just never mind. Just forget it. Just, just never mind. All I was trying to do was just have a conversation. 
So the way we try to approach things now after 33 years of marriage is we never catch each other off guard. Because she's a human with feelings and I'm a human with feelings and the last thing we need to do is ambush each other. That's what I mean by intention. Don't ambush each other with an argument. Simply say this, hey, Thursday, what's your schedule look like? I know you're busy with the kids. I got, I'm studying for BU, my mind on Monday and Tuesday. I don't want to do anything on Monday and Tuesday because I'm studying all day. And I, I definitely don't want to hash this out on a date night because that's just going to frustrate the date night. How about Thursday evening? Let's go to Mellow Mushroom. Let's sit down and let's talk about this thing. That's what I mean by intention. Now, she's not caught unaware. She knows when we get there, we're going to talk about this. This may sound silly to you, but it works. We don't talk about it perpetually. So we're going to sit at Mellow Mushroom. We're going to talk about this thing and we're going to talk for 40 minutes. And at the end of 40 minutes, we're just going to let it sit. And we're going to enjoy our pizza. Because if you're not careful in intention, in the intention, the frustration ensues. She never finishes the pizza. She's waiting on you in the truck, you think. But she's so frustrated, she called Uber. You're driving by yourself. <laughs> and you're thinking, well, pastor said be intentional. And she took an Uber home. So what I do mean about intention is even at how long we will talk about it because we don't want to let it keep boiling and boiling because every pot is great to boil. It'll make a good tater. But if you leave it too long and water's boiling out, right? So be intention. Number two, start with conversation, not accusation. Many people that are married never even can talk about it because we start accusing. Well, you always. So words like always and never just never work. Well, every time I try to talk about it, you always. And I'm like, oh, here goes that always word again. And then my personality is like, no, now not always. Most ways, but not always. I mean, nine out of ten, yeah. Well, you never, okay, don't say never, like never, like 33 years of never. So I find that the reason most will just sit in a land of it is what it is, is every time they try to converse, they end up accusing each other. And they end up getting very mean and they say things that are hurtful. So if you're going to be intentional and set the moment to talk about the problem and define what the problem is, and we're going to put a time limit on it. Now, when we show up, we're going to conversate. So no fair saying, well, you always, and the last time we, and last time, no, we're going to leave accusation off. We're just going to chat. That's all we're going to, you tell me how you feel. I'll tell you how I feel. We're not going to try to win here. Now, remember, I'm not talking about approaching winning approaching a solution because sometimes with problems there's multiple solutions there's not just one there's multiple and sometimes she has it and sometimes you have it and sometimes you both have it because many times Robin sees things I often sees things I don't see so her wisdom in the matter helps me see it differently than I'm seeing it because I'm practical and tactical and she's emotional and relational and I like practical and tactical woman foolish woman and she's like you just curse God and die 
So many times emotional relational are much better outcomes because it's thinking about the whole. I just don't like emotional relational because it takes longer. I like now. Let's just get, let's just pull the bandaid off and bleed it out. And then I feel better because I feel like, and she goes to the bedroom crying, but I feel like I won that one. So conversate rather than accuse. Number three, start with roots and not results. Every problem has a root connected to it, but when we sit down, we're trying to get a result rather than define the root. All right, here's the problem. Okay, what is it? Um, Stella's flunking class. That's hypothetical. She's doing great, but I, I throw them out there to you. She's flunking. Okay, I'll, I'll deal with her when I get home. So now already I've, I've, I've missed number one because I got downloaded. Now daddy's frustrated that kid is failing and I'm not going to have a conversation with her. I'm going to come home and accuse her. Why are you failing? What happened? What are you doing? Hand me your phone. Get up to your room. Until you get an A, nine weeks. You're, you see, it never works. Because I'm looking for results, you need to make an A rather than looking at the roots. Maybe she's too busy. Maybe she's got a lot going on. Maybe she's stressed out. Maybe she has a teacher that's not teaching well. Maybe she doesn't understand the subject. Maybe she's uh, staying awake and not doing her homework. Maybe she's not taking it serious. So rather than just hand me your phone, you're grounded till you get an A, and then I go talk to the teacher, that's results, I look at the root of it. So rather than fighting, going, well, I just think we ought to have more sex because we never do. And then we argue. Well, maybe the root of that, rather than just having more intimate time in the bedroom, maybe the root of that is she doesn't feel appreciated. Maybe it has nothing to do with you. Maybe she doesn't feel pretty. And you're like, doesn't feel pretty. She's beautiful. But in her mind, she doesn't feel pretty. So for her to take her clothes off is, is intimidating and she doesn't enjoy it. And, and, or maybe she's had a, a time in her life where something abuseful happened to her. And so our intimacy is, is hurting. And I just, I just want to figure out why she won't approach me and why she won't touch me and why she likes the lights off. And I don't understand all of that. But, but when you start with, let's, let's get to the root of why are we hurting here? Why has this problem arisen? And I can talk, because when you start talking roots, you don't get frustrated because the results pale in comparison to why are we here? And I tell you this a lot, like in transparent as I can be. Like I am a professional powder. Like that is just a gift. I'm gifted at it. If you want to know, take my class. I am gifted. But the root of my pouting is different than the results. The root of my pouting is I like things to work. And when things don't work, I get irritable. But I don't get outward irritable. I get inward irritable because I like things to work. So now at you know, 58, 33 years of marriage, I'm pretty good. I don't really pout much. Two times a year I really try to keep it alive. But... But most of the time, I've got pouting out of the way. 
Because now I've learned, if the moment I feel myself start wanting to pout, I stop and go, wait, this to me, I stop and go, okay, don't do that. That doesn't work. Why are you this way? What's, what's going on? So when you talk out, let's look for roots. Number four, I got two more. I'm terrible at this. I flunk it. Start with empathy. Oh, God. Empathy. Oh, Jesus. Empathy versus arguing is this. Arguing is we talk about Job only. Empathy is we care about how she feels. Empathy is strange because most men don't do well being empathetic. Most men are, there's no crying in baseball. What would you go off crying for again? Empathy is that you look past the superficial and you get deep down in the soul of the why. You care about the why. You care about how it makes them feel. And the reason I have arguing beside empathy rather than apathy is because often I argue how I feel and really don't ever stop to think how she feels. And I will tell you this about being married to Robin and I, husband and wife, male and female. Women are very empathetic. It, it, everything. Friends, uh, you know, typical. Very empathetic to get into the emotions of it. And the, it's what I said when we were looking at a house. I'm over here going, well, can't you see we could move this wall and we could do that and we could do... And not even looking at her going, hey, tell me how you... How do you see this house? Like I care. I genuinely care. Like I could tear every wall out and make a dream of it, but it really doesn't matter. If it doesn't sit well with your soul, tell me why. Like, and, and genuinely, fellas, when you start caring about how she feels, rather than I wish I had more sex, caring that she may not like her body, Rather than you barking things at her, caring that she may have had a bad day, caring that she may not like the way her breasts look, caring that she may be frustrated that the kids are not doing good in school, caring, and all of a sudden you begin to empathize with your spouse rather than just argue with them. I'm telling you this one word, fellas, this is for my, my fellas, if you could learn to empathize with problems, they sure do get better. Because when you empathize, she doesn't feel attacked. She feels supported. She feels loved. She, and here's a big one. The, the best word I can connect to empathy is this, and I've heard it for years in counseling. She, she finally feels heard. You'll hear a lot. I just don't feel like he hears me. I tell him over and over and over. And I'll tell you how this works out. When she says, I just wish he would bring me flowers. Empathy. He says, well, why didn't you tell me? All you had to do was say, bring me home some flowers, and I'd have brought you home some flowers. And then she comes back and says, I don't want to have to tell you. You should be thinking about me all day. You should go by the flower store and think, she needs flowers. And then he says, well, why didn't you tell me that? Why didn't you tell me you wanted flowers? I'm trying to tell you I don't want to do it. And I'm like, oh my God. I hit the nail on the head, I know. 
right? Fellas, throw this out. I got to end. Throw this out. The last thing she wants to remind you is it's the kid's birthday, it's her birthday, and it's Christmas. <laughs> Empathy is you going, hey, I went by and got a card for the kid's birthdays. What? Now, all of that just simply says that I care about what you care about without you having to remind me I care about what you care about. Number five, this is the spiritual one. Start with prayer instead of punches. And by punches, I mean if you've been married long enough, you know how to punch the button. You know what button to push to make this thing go skyrocket. You know the code word when to push it. And when we start out and we're trying to do well, all right, we're intentional, we're conversating. Ooh, this feels good, just like Pastor Martin said. Ooh, we're getting to the root of it. It was his mother all along. I knew it. <laughs> he actually walked in the door and asked me if I've had a good day. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the problem, we start pushing each other's buttons. Because if you've been, if you're married long enough, you know what that button is. And we can push it well. So start with prayer. Hey, honey, how can I pray with you today? Hey, here's a frustration. Hey, before we talk about it, let's just pray over it. Let's write a prayer out for this thing. And then maybe rather than talking about the problem, let's talk about the prayer we just wrote out. Because the prayer is connected to the problem, but the prayer is not the problem and the prayer is not the results. But let's talk about the prayer. And then in talking about the prayer, we start having a conversation. And then in the prayer, we start defining the roots. And lo and behold, we start making solutions rather than divorcing. Stand up with me and let me pray for you.